what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what we haven't done for a long time? Dance together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can arrange that. But the other thing we haven't done for a long time is new ads. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. All right. We've got to start with the OG. We always start with the OG. Yeah. But he's good to start with. The odds are wiener. Yep. The wiener himself. Yep. The original sponsor of the show, Mm. the man who wanted to sponsor us from episode one, and we told him to fuck off. And then later we're like, hey, we'll take some of that money now, please. Grumpiest but most lovable prick you could ever meet in your life. Yeah, it's the Einzer Wiener. Yep. Jason Furman, Mm. Einswick Dog Quip. If you're in Australia, that's where you're getting your stuff. Yeah. Crazy if you don't get pretty much. If you want dog stuff, get it from there. Have you seen that he hand makes a lot of his stuff as well? I've seen that. He tags me in his Instagram. I I know. Me too. I see it. He's using his sewing machine. Yep. Playing his songs. He's really embracing social media these days. Yep. He used to have nothing at all. Yeah. A shit website. Yeah. But now, now he's, he's got a working website and social media. I like watching him use his sewing machine. Next thing I know, he'll be making linen on a loom. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> hey, you know who else sponsors the show? Who? Your wife. She does. Yeah. Canine Suticles. Yep. The best dog suticles. <laughs> the best canine suticles. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah, it. Yeah, it's great shit. There's been hot demand for her to get this all over the world. Like mm-hmm. people are asking her from every country. She's looking into it at the moment. Okay. So that's going to happen. All right. I caught up with George Kittridge and saw the actual Rowdy Hound box. I know. Yeah. So I had a good talk with George actually about his process in getting this thing to market. Yep. It's a motherfucker. So you should, if you want one, you should get one because George has put a lot of work into turning this dream into a reality. He and did so much R&D, didn't he? Oh, huge. And yep. the, the product is amazing. Yep. And so he's got one. training videos, everything showing he trains and supports people how to get the dog into it, yep. how to make it safe, yep. how to make the dog have a good experience from so it. So if you ride a motorbike and you have a dog, you need the Rowdy Hound dog box on the back of that motorbike. Absolutely. Next, Fabian Romo. Yes. He's got a shop, Mojo. And you've seen it. I've been in there. You've I stolen stole a tug. Stuff. Yeah. I stole a tug. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd said as I was leaving, I'm taking this, yep. so I guess it doesn't count. But yeah. Mojo Dog. Did you pay for it? I mean. With your time. Yeah. So it's not really a theft. Yeah. Okay. Everything's fine. If you need dog gear in North America, that's where to get it. Mojo. Yeah. Yeah. They've got everything. What he has, to be honest, is the best dog trainers shop. Yep. It's without a doubt the best shop that I've walked into where you can buy actual dog trainer gear. Yep. Yeah. High quality e-collars, mills, leashes, you know, all the things. Like proper tugs, like all the actual things that real dog trainers use. Mm. Mojo. Get it there. We have a new sponsor also. We do. Yeah. Daniel Trapino. Trapino. Yeah, that yeah, sounds about Daniel right. Daniel Trapino. It's Dog Club, South yeah, Australia. Yeah. What does he do there? It's kind of like a little hangout hood that he's created there. A little cultural hub. A little cultural hub in South Australia. So I think that's what Daniel was trying to go for, was to try and embrace and build the culture in South Australia. Because I will be honest, it's been sadly lacking for many, many years. Mm. Like not much really canine came out of South Australia. So I think it doesn't mean there aren't good dog trainers down there. There's some very good dog trainers and personalities down in South Australia, but they've never really 
elevated it. And I think that's what Daniel wants to do. He really wants to push it out into the public forefront. Get in there, South Australians. Get into the dog, dog club. club. SA. We must never forget Dan Croft. Dan Croft in Canada. What a good yeah. bloke he is. I love speaking to Dan as well. Yeah. Great facility. Great facility. Really emphasizing his puppy training programs. Mm-hmm. I just put an ad up today on Instagram showing a little Doberman doing his little course running around. But that's what he really wants to emphasize on the critical period of development in young dogs and puppies. But it's not only that. I mean, it's all working breeds. As I've said before, as you've said before, very impressive to watch all of these dogs on BOSU balls, balancing and all of the breeds that other people usually are shying away from. He's got like a whole room full of them there. Great shop, great setup, great social media. I really like the Dan Croft setup. Our last person. Who? Barbara DeGroote. Oh, lovely Barbara. Yeah, the sugar mama. From the heart dog training. Yeah. She didn't really want to emphasize. She just said, here, have some cash. Yeah, so we just want to say thank you, Barbara. We, we do want to say thank you, Barbara. Thank you for supporting us. You're we wonderful. You. We do love you. On with the show. Indeed. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio once again by my co-host, Glenn Cook. We're starting to make a habit of this. We are. Mm. We're getting it done. I saw that we had a lot of very positive interactions from the last podcast, Mm -hmm. intrinsic versus extrinsic Mm -hmm. reinforcers or rewards or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I started listening to the book. Mm -hmm. So I had a meeting in Ingleside today, had about an hour and a half to kill each way. Mm -hmm. So I got about three hours deep into it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm. So one thing that I did find interesting about it was his opening to the book Mm. where he proclaims how poorly he did with behavioral studies very early on. That was one thing. Another thing that I kind of found a little confronting for me, and I will reserve more of it because, as I've said, I've only got into the early stages of it, more so how aggravated he seems to be by BF Skinner Mm. And he pulls up quite a lot of gotcha moments with Skinner. Like he invited him to seminars only to try and antagonize him at the end as a gotcha. And I kind of thought, what a prick of a thing to do. Like invite somebody that you see as your peer or a mentor or somebody, but more or less to try and create conflict with them towards the end of a lecture. Like you're good enough to turn up. Mm. That seemed like an ugly behavior to do for somebody who's studying behaviorism. Yeah. I can't remember whether I mentioned it last week when we were talking about the book. Of course, for people who haven't listened last week, we were talking about the book Punished by Rewards by Alfie Cohn. Yes. Now, I can't remember if I mentioned this, and I highly doubt that I would have, but I've been contacted by so many people during the week. Oh, it's uh, incredible how many people have have been flooding us with emails over it. Yeah, and I think one thing I did want to point out was I didn't enjoy the book at all. Mm. I thought there was some really quite interesting topics within it, and I thought I'm glad that I – invested the time into it and I've drawn quite a lot of good information from it, but the style in which it was written, I didn't, I didn't appreciate. Yeah. I think that one thing that's pretty interesting that he does throughout the book, it's an interesting phenomenon we sometimes see, especially we see it on social media quite a bit. And you know, like he's a, a like an author is a content producer of sorts, right? So like, mm. I don't want to compare myself to authors, but everybody that's making content for the public to consume, which is 
essentially everybody in the dog training space. Which if you've is got what a, we're doing now. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. If you've got a small business, you are now a, a content creator. A, yeah, a content creator. I couldn't think yeah. of it. You are a content creator because that's how advertising works these yeah. days. The days of taking out the biggest ad in the yellow pages are over. Mm. If you want to advertise your product or service, you've got to be providing content to, that shows that you are, you know, at the minimum, the lights are on at your business. I think yep. that's one of the things that I've found myself explaining to quite a few people who I coach is that. Even if social media isn't how you draw clients, even if it isn't something that you're interested in in being involved in, even if you don't want to follow the trends and build a big audience, even if your business is just a small local business and developing an audience bigger than your actual physical reach is useless to you, you still have to have a decent social media presence just to prove that the lights are on. Because I think especially in the dog training space, there's so many people who start a business because they, you know, potentially want to be a hobbyist dog trainer. They're going to do it on the side. They do an NDTF course or equivalent wherever they are in the world. And they decide, yeah, I'm going to get into this. And Mm. they start a business and then like never really continue doing it. They realize that it's not for them or that, you know, they don't have the time, the space, whatever the many and various reasons that people come and go from this industry quite quickly. It's a high turnover industry. And so one of the important things is beyond having a website, you need a social media presence that just proves like, hey, I'm here. I'm, mm. I'm actually doing this. It, you don't have to be posting you know, heaps of amazing content. You don't have, even have to be using it necessarily as a marketing funnel, but you do have to have a presence of sorts so that people can say, oh, that is a functioning and running business. I'll get in contact with them. Whether they're impressed by your social media or not, the fact that you posted in the last six weeks means that you are a functioning business and carry on. So we're all content creators of a sort. We kind of have to be. There's no way around that if you're a small business owner. So that said, I'll now make the comparison. of Like what he does in the book quite a lot is field criticism that has not been leveled at him. And I think that's one of the things that sort of tells me that somebody's a little uneasy in themselves and perhaps even their argument is that when they start making claims that haven't been made against them, we see that with like, he, you know, makes claims of like, oh, and I know the argument will be this. So here's the answer to that. Whereas like, I don't enjoy that style. And I know that can be a slippery slope. And certainly there would have been times, I'm sure someone could find times where I've done the same thing and said, like framed a point that I'm making in terms of a rebuttal to someone else where they haven't given that rebuttal because that's an easy way. It's kind of a lazy way of, of framing your argument. And I think that it's exactly that it is lazy. And instead of actually framing it properly so that if you, the listener or the reader is having doubts about what he's saying, he should try and convince you using just his own argument, not having to give a counterpoint to a point that was never made. I have a point to that. And just being in the industry that we're in, let's talk about the dog industry, our mm-hmm. industry. Our industry is very confrontational at times. There is a lot of people who remark on people's work mm-hmm. quite readily and actively, which they're welcome to. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you've stated before and others have stated, if you put yourself out there, you should expect to get some form of criticism or construction that comes back to you. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's up to you whether you want to respond to that or not. So sometimes people just put out their work because they're proud of it and, you know, people will make remark and they don't read the comments. They don't really care. They're just saying, I like posing with my dog. It's fun. That's what I'm all about. Where are the people doing it as a teaching medium? And they say, this is my business. This is the products and services that I offer. If you're interested in more, come and see me. Mm-hmm. As a industry, we can be very brutal on each other. So I think sometimes when you see that level of brutality or even criticism that is readily available at any given time on multiple different avenues, 
you kind of see a trend and you can prepare for it ahead of time. Mm. So I think that's fair to say that if you're aware of the slings and arrows of what the industry is going to offer, you could look at it from a means average and say, well, here is responses to things like this that have been done before from my account because I know as a trend that this is likely to happen. Mm. So that could possibly happen in that scenario. But as I said before, I'm going to make it clear that I'm going to reserve a lot more of it because I'm so minimalized into the book yet. Sure. So I'm probably in chapter three or something like that. So it's only two and a half to three hours of a 12 or 13 hour book. There's another whole 10 odd hours to go. Mm -hmm. There's obviously a lot, but right off the start, and we often do say that first impressions are lasting impressions. Those key points triggered me at the start. I kind of thought, why would he say that? Yeah. And why would he do that to B.F. Skinner? Like I've had people that I haven't seen eye to eye with and they've come to seminars or I've been to a lecture of theirs and I don't want to trip them up. I'm generally interested in what they've got to teach. And some of it I might think, well, I've got through three quarters of that and it was terrible, but there was a quarter of it that I found really interesting and fascinating and I'm prepared to go and investigate further on that. I wouldn't try and pull them apart on the stage and just say, well, fuck you, I'm going to make all my students see your flaws or the holes in your argument here. I would probably have a private conversation in a back room and say, hey, yeah, I've got some questions, you know, like I've got some feelings about some of the things that you've done. And as somebody who's been in the industry and you've put this out there and you've lectured it to people, here are my footnotes on it. What are your responses? Mm, yeah. It is pretty off-putting at the start of the book. Okay? It is. He just shits yeah. on Skinner. That was one of the things I, I think is fascinating because like there are his, some of his critiques of Skinner I share. We spoke about it last week. Like, you know, part of when I present is talking about how fascinating it is, how correct Skinner was, in my opinion, about many things and how wrong he was about others. Nobody is all right and nobody is all wrong. Totally. I know it's not Jay's statement, but I've heard it from him first and I really like it and I've run with it quite a lot of times is – even a broken clock is right twice a day. Yeah. There's tons of people in this industry who are just fumbling their way through it and finally they get something right, whether it's by chance or they lucked into it or they have actually studied a small portions of what their skill set is and they've transposed that onto their actual work and they're right in that, but the rest of the stuff, they're all wrong. That does happen quite readily. Mm. I think that that's an interesting kind of segue into what I originally sort of discussed that I wanted to talk to you about is mm. when people no longer align with their own or the potential to no longer align with your own brand that you've created. Mm. And I think that's an interesting thing that we do sometimes see is where, especially if you're going to be on social media, if you're going to be creating content, if you're going to be a person who takes clients in and shows the work that you do with those clients or any of, you know, any variation of all of that is that, very quickly, I think you can be painted into a corner by your own success and you can sort of be stuck doing what you have been doing in the past because that's the expectation that there is of you. Yep. And I think that that probably has happened to many people across many industries doing all sorts of things. I think that it's a dangerous trap to sort of get yourself stuck in a box of your own making, right? And I think that the step of getting out of that box and changing publicly your stance on something 
or to admit that you were wrong about something else. Like it's a very noble thing to do and we should all aspire to be able to do it, but it's fucking hard. Oh, it takes it's, a dent to the ego, let yeah, me tell you. <laughs> yeah, and especially, you know, like I try really hard never to attach myself to my ideas. We talked about this last week that even your own thoughts are not your own, right? Like mm. they're you're the awareness behind your thoughts, you are not those thoughts. And so you're attaching your own self to your ideas and your work is a very dangerous thing to do because if it turns out that your work is shit, then you are shit. Mm. Right? Or if it turns out that your work is misguided and wrong, causing damage to people, then it's you who are a misguided, wrong, damaging person. And you're kind of stuck being like that. Yes. And, and it can be very difficult to no longer be that. And what we often see and maybe this is the case of many of the scientists of the past or present and future, is that you can very quickly get stuck. That, no, this is my idea. And in spite of the evidence, and you know, that there's a lot of studies that prove all this, that evidence isn't necessarily going to change people's mind. It can actually, if somebody holds a really deeply held position that becomes a part of their identity, evidence to the contrary can make them double down on their position that they now understand to be incorrect. And they can, you know, make up all sorts of reasons why that evidence is not accurate and all sorts of reasons that give them permission to dismiss it and double down on their original thoughts and feelings, which they have been shown is not accurate. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. On the flip side of that, and I've used this example before, nonetheless, it's a very important one where I found out the feelings of people when they feel damaged and the perceived relief of everybody else if you were to let go of that damage. But because they have amalgamated that damage into part of their identity, the concern of those people and even the thing that they say is, if you take this away from me, who am I without it? Yeah, And that's the thing that scares them. And I think circling back to what you were talking about before, if you amalgamate yourself with your job, instead of you thinking, well, this is a skill set that I have, something that I'm able to do. It's not the only thing I'm able to do. I'm capable of far more than this. But if you can't see it like that and if you have attributed that to the only thing that you have and the only thing that you can do, then you believe that that skill is your identity. You, are, mm. you and it are one in the same. Mm. So you're right. When that skill set is attacked or when it's questioned or when somebody criticizes it, even whether it's constructive or not, you feel personally harmed by what is being said. Mm. And I have had some experience in that before. When I was a younger guy, I was suffering from a range of emotions. It took me a long time to undo that. There are still times where I find myself getting upset over things I should not be getting upset about. When I have to sit down and analyse them or I have somebody who cares about me who points it out and says, this is not you. Much like the example I used in last week's episode where I talked about a staff member who was dealing with an angry client and really felt that all of that heat that was coming from them was being directed directly to them. Mm. It wasn't until it was explained to them, it's not directly at you. It's about a situation that's happened within the confines of the business that we all work in and that's how you need to look at it. Mm. But it's hard when you're dealing with that and when you have a level of immaturity either as in physical growth or even mental growth, to know how to deal with that until someone has actually given you the tools. Recently, I had to go through a HR experience where the HR person was talking to me about a range of things and they said, why didn't this get done and why didn't your staff do this and this and this? And I said, 
because we're not HR people. Mm. This is not our full-time job. We're animal care specialists. And she said, yeah, but you're a growing company. You'd need to know all this sort of stuff. I said, yeah, you're right. That's why you're here. That's you're here to do that. That's your job. And I said, so proceed, educate us, give us the tools, show us the procedures, give us the diagrams, and I will make sure it's disseminated accurately amongst my senior staff. Kindly, somebody contacted me during the week and said that they, one thing that they found very helpful and interesting in your or my discussion last week was they're going through some drama in their dog training business with staff. And they said, there's snippets of things that you and I have talked about. And this is the importance of us not just making it solely dog. It's about people in the canine industry or Mm. the industry that we share. But they said, because of the information that you and Pat spoke about, it helped me deal with something that I was largely incapable of dealing with because I had no experience. And Mm. then I was able to relay it on what the tactics that you guys have done in similar experience. I appreciate that. I'm glad that people are picking up some helpful dog advice, but they're also picking up some helpful advice on working with the people around them. Because as I said before, or as we have said, as many of us have said, behaviorism is not just limited to dogs. Mm. You know, behaviorism started on companion animals and then segued into humans because it was unethical to do so. But all of the marvelous and intriguing things that we're finding out in dealing and strategizing and managing our dogs better. We're on a magnificent journey ourselves with our own children, with our staff, with the customers that we're dealing with. And this all has a bleed on effect in everything that we do, all the relationships we form, whether they're four legged or two legged. Mm. To sort of bounce back just a little bit to mm. punish by rewards, yep. you'll get to it. But later he talks a lot about payment structures in the workplace yeah, and incentivize payment he's structures. He's starting on that. That's now coming into the chapters where he's really relaying and emphasizing how punishing it is. And when I was listening to it, and again, I'm I'm not so deep into it yet, so I can't have the comparison that you have. But when I listened to it in the briefing that I did today, I kind of felt like, He's talking about a continuous schedule of reinforcement that's then been dumped so an extinction process sets in place and there's no intermittent schedule that's been relayed across time where the student can therefore develop a habit towards the behaviour. That's what I kind of took away from it in the early section of the book. Yeah, I agree totally. And so that's what he kind of misses quite a bit Mm. and it's that whether you're using an intrinsic or extrinsic motivator, your reinforcement schedule needs to be correct. You have to go into some form of variable schedule eventually, otherwise extinction is bound. Yeah. And it sounds like he's using, and this is just me, in the early chapters, it just sounds like it's a lot of poor examples or cherry-picked examples where people have done it badly and just gone from a continuous schedule and then dumped it so it's gone extinct and therefore the expectation of the student in whatever form it is, is so despondent that they think, well, fuck you and your incentives and your tests or whatever they are. Yeah. Now I really don't want to. And they develop a kind of malice towards the test or the expectation or the incentive program that was designed in the first place. Exactly. I think that's one of the really interesting things of behaviorism. And it's something that we, we see quite a bit with pet dog owners, mm. as well as sort of newer dog trainers, is that you don't realize that it kind of doesn't matter how long you're at a consistent reinforcement schedule, whether it's the learner has only just got the behavior and understanding it and you're still at that consistent reinforcement schedule or they understood it two years ago and you stayed at a continual payment schedule. you felt safe there. Right. It doesn't really matter which one you did. One, you've only just got enough reps for the 
learner to understand it and another you've paid it 10,000 times, you're still only a few reps away from extinction. Yeah. Right? And and yeah. that's what I think a lot of people don't get is mm. this idea that, no, like I've been teaching the the sit for a year and I've been paying every time and I'm building a really strong habit around it. And then especially when you then start going into like, you know, if you're trying to fix a problem with using uh, reinforcement, which we see quite a lot of people trying to do like, you know, uh, differential reinforcement strategies whereby the dog wants to do a thing. This is very common in the sort of plus R community, right? Like where the dog wants to do something like uh, that's an undesirable behavior and it's a very self-reinforcing behavior, right? So like usually when dogs have some sort of, if it's not aggression, Mm. then it's usually some sort of prey chasing sort of thing that often gets misdiagnosed as aggression or really can become aggression if it's not fulfilled, right? If frustration can become aggression pretty quickly. Yep. So I think that, one of the things we hear about quite a lot is this idea of differential reinforcement strategies and reinforcement of other behaviors. And then we even go into like the stupidity of um, what's the one of uh, reinforcing the least problematic thing. I kind of, they've got some stupid fucking name for that as well of like where you have to reinforce the dog. So you just reinforce the thing that is the least problematic. If the dog does more of it, I can't remember what they call that. They got a name for that. Anyway, I can't think of it off the top of my head. But you know what I'm talking about. I do know what you're talking about, yeah. All those things, they can work on a long enough timeline. They can all work. But the problem is where you see a lot of people doing those differential reinforcement strategies is that they just go like, right, okay, I've been doing this for six months. I've been reinforcing every time that the trigger arrives. So, yeah, let's create a fictional scenario. We've got a Kelpie that chases a bike, right? Yep. Like if you haven't dealt with that in your dog training career, you're going to. You're going to look forward to <laughs> right? it. Yeah. Like it's happening. It's yep. going to happen many times. You've got a Kelpie that's chasing a bike. You're going to teach it like that bike is now the trigger for some other behavior that you've decided is a basic position or a heel position, focus on you, whatever it is. And you're going to reinforce at such a high schedule of reinforcement that you're going to make the choice when the dog sees the trigger or that would normally make it chase it just because the dog wants to and mother nature says that it should. You're now going to have that dog make a differential, a different choice and offer you the basic position in order to receive some sort of food reinforcer or play or prey, whatever it is you're going to give the dog in position. That can work. There's certainly there's times where the dog will be very old and frail and it will, the reason it no longer chases the bike is because it's got a heart condition and it can only only take two or three steps, right? Like that might be the reason eventually, but there's other times where that will work just fine. And, but where that usually fails when it does is that people go like, right, it worked. That's solved. And it's like, no, 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 no. Because the moment you stop reinforcing that behavior that you have taught as a monkey drill. Here comes the intrinsic desire to chase the bike. Exactly. Mm. Right. And that intrinsic desire will always trump that extrinsic motivation. Absolutely. When you go straight to like cold turkey, like I've taught it to you, you've been doing it and the dog goes, yeah, I'll do it. I really like chasing that bike. That's really high on my list of priority things to do, but you've shown me that that's not going to fly. Right. Because like, like I'm restricted by the leash, so yep. I can't get to it. And if I do this other thing, you'll pay me. Yep. And so we pay, 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 and we then go, look, it works. And you are forever going to carry around that treat pouch and you are forever going to have to be paying the dog when it does that. Mm. 
unless you go, you have, be quite thoughtful in that process and really think about, okay, but how do I get that to a variable reinforcement schedule? How do I get that to the point where the, I don't have to be carrying this treat pouch around for the rest of my life and how the dog offers me that known behavior with the expectation that potentially it's going to get paid and how regularly am I going to have to pay that, right? Like how often do I need to tick the box of like, yes, it happened so that the dopamine spike still happens and, and everything that we know and love of behaviorism, when we start talking variable reinforcement schedules, it stays in effect rather than just going like, oh, he does it. He knows it now yep. and no longer paying it. And the dog will give you one, two, maybe even a third rep of offering you that behavior that doesn't get paid before he then goes, well, fuck that, that you built this behavior and this behavior is a hundred percent conditional on the reinforcement. You built it on a castle of lies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But do you know what? That bike is still moving and mother nature's still telling me to chase it. So yep. off I go to chase that. Yep. The other thing that I wanted to talk Absent about. Absent an effective negative reinforcer. That's fucking difficult. Yeah. Oh, yeah. totally. Yeah. You know, a, a negative reinforcer into the behavior that you, yes. the, the differential behavior that you want to teach or, you know, straight punishment for performing the behavior that yep. you don't want it to teach. Either one of those is going to assist. It depends on, depends on what you want is, would determine which one of those, which route you're going to go down. That's an interesting conversation in and of its own that I know we've had a million times, but I always get feedback on it. And every time I mention it, there's always wide eyes. They're hearing it for the first time, even though they've heard it many times, because sometimes you use different words, people understand it differently, but there's a big difference in the outcome when you're dealing with a situation like that, whether the pressure that you use at the end of the line is perceived as a dog as negative reinforcement into an alternate behavior or punishment for that behavior. Mm. And you really get some what very- What form of punishment? Exactly. Mm. You know, no matter how you do it, but if the dog perceives it as punishment, he's no longer going to display that behavior, assuming the punishment's effective and you generalized it and blah, blah, blah. Yep. Whether you're using negative punishment, positive punishment, however it goes down. But it's got to be dog, a perceived punisher. The dog's got to see it as punishment. Yep. And know that that is a punishment is an aversive from which there is no escape. It yes. can only be avoided. It yep. cannot escape it. Whereas negative reinforcement into an alternate behavior is going to mean that the dog knows how to turn off the aversive. Mm. And hopefully if we've done our training well and it's what we you know, desired, if this is the desired outcome, is that trigger, the bike in our, our case this time, tells the dog avoid the discomfort that would come of negative reinforcement, avoid the discomfort that will come by offering the behavior quickly, do it immediately. And that you'll be able to avoid it. Never mind, escape it. And if that works, then you're, you're sweet. You're home and hosed. That's a hard calculation to play with an intelligent dog though, and a bad handler. Yes. And also, you know, if the dog is like, well, do you know what? Like, I do really like chasing those bikes. Yeah. And and it's just a calculation that the dog will find, oh, even though this happens, it's still a leapfrog effect that I'm yeah. happy to get the payoff from it. Exactly. So mm. I get to chase it, the bike for just a just moment. Just a second, yeah. Then I get blasted on the collar. Yep. And then I can stop that blasting immediately by just jumping into the, into the basic position. And if you take your eyes off me, I'm going to go after that bike again. Yes. And then if you catch me, that's no problem because yep. I'll feel the discomfort, but it's totally fine because I know exactly how to turn off that comfort by offering the basic position. Yep. So the real danger of all of that is the worst thing that can happen in that scenario. And you see this all the time is dogs that actually like that game even more than the original game of chase the bike where they get the like, not only do I get to play the, I chase the bike game and mother nature tells me that's a wonderful game to play. Like that is just so intrinsic. Probably I was talking to Katrina about this a while ago, 
probably she reckons that the spokes on the bike is something that approximates like trotting her feet. Yeah, feet mm. so fast that it just overloads a lot of those kelpies. Like, because if you're looking at like a bunch of say sheep that are going through a run, like it just overloads them because it's just intermittently seeing it moving, moving, moving. But it's the even the, it's even the feet on the pedals too. Like yeah. going at such rapid rotation because yeah. a lot of times people get bitten on the ankle and feet that I've gone to the consults for. Yeah. When I'm looking at the photos and councils involved and all that sort of shit, it's usually wounds to the ankles and the feet. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. I actually think that's a sound and plausible point. Yeah. That, yeah, that makes sense. It's just like I've got like there's a strong draw to that. Yeah. Mother Nature says I have to run at that and I have to bite it and push it into compliance and I don't really know what compliance is but I'm still going to do it. Well, it's right? 200 plus years of breeding in Australian conditions yeah. to do that and – you know, these are dogs that are not far from being dragged off the farms yeah. and bred and put into captivity where they've got all that ex- that expendable energy to go somewhere. Yeah. I saw a really, again, you know, an interesting critique of, of me, I don't know if it included you, of like, oh, I'd like to see how they handle a primitive breed. And it's like, I've trained a lot of fucking Kelpies and I know that we don't put I've those- I've trained dingoes. Yeah. But I know we don't put Kelpies into the like primitive breed. When people say that, they're thinking- you know, like the livestock guarding dogs, that, those kind of things. But the average Australian Kelpie off a farm. Like Kangols and Maremmas. Kind of and shit, right? Yep. But the average Australian Kelpie off a farm, like a, so many few people realise like that is barely a dog by pet standards because their lineage, like, you know, a couple of hundred years of genetic selection has meant that they're chained to a tree when they're not usually working. Or they sleep on the porch outside. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not a inside in the, on the bed They don't want to cuddle. They, no. They're not interested in a relationship. No, they they're, just want to be fed and mainly well, but their even reward the food comes drive, the Yeah, the food drive has been bred out of them for the most part because yep. you don't want them Reliant losing Reliant on using food. They, it's long, harsh conditions in very arid weather. Yeah. Dusty, dirty, dry, but it's a perpetual reinforcement. You know, Lindsay and I, Steve Lindsay and I were talking about this many, many years ago and he used it as a tracking example. Like when you get a dog that really likes, that has an intrinsic desire to want to track um, or detect, after a period of time, the dog will walk over food because it's thinking, I'm not here for the food, I'm here for the track. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing to see except when you don't want to see it. Yeah, totally. And that's what we see in the the good Kelpies that really work stock all day, every day. Mm. They're not interested in eating. You almost have to fucking beg them to eat. And the way that they usually are fed is with like a carcass once a week that they just sort of graze on at their yeah, leisure. Yeah, they're gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. They will often go days without eating and by their own choice. They've got totally free access to, to food right there. But they just are like, nah, I'm not that into it, right? Like they want to do the work and it's not until they're really like, oh, okay, you're, you're for sure there's no work. Or they can tell like, they're, they're, you know, they know the routine of the farm. They know like, okay, that's done. It's not likely that I'm going to have to move anyone around for a little while. Now I'll eat today, right? Yeah. So they're, they're not an easy animal to leverage for the most part. There's probably somebody looking at their Kelpie now saying like, that's not true, Pat. They're nothing like that. Well, yours wouldn't be great on the farm. Mm, That's exactly right. (laughs) Like if you've got a real sooky Kelpie that wants to spend heaps of time with you, if you've got one that's got a heap of food motivation, it ain't going to do real well at a stock trial. Well, we've seen the lineage of the German Shepherd to see what inaccurate breeding can actually produce. Well, I mean, when I say that, people who have those dogs that are wobbly in the back legs and, you Mm -hmm. know, have a hump in their spine and everything like that and they desirably bred that, shame on you, they don't seem any wrong with that. They actually... Uh, argue the counter that mm. there is something wrong with the dogs that we still maintain. Yeah, with their flat backs and ability to move around. Yeah, terrible. How li- wicked. Living to be 12 to 15 instead of 8. Yep. How dare they? I know. Disgusting. <laughs> 
it was interesting. Yeah, interesting on your conversation about farm dogs and so forth because I recall time with my Uncle Ray and I spent a lot of my school holidays in country Victoria with him. He was cool before people were cool because he was raw feeding his dogs all the time. Oh, wow. Yeah, so. Did he take photos of it? With what? Well, if you don't take photos of it, it didn't happen. Yeah, well, we're talking like 40 <laughs> years ago and there were no iPhones and taking photos were, was a... You had one of those Kodak um, disposables. Yeah, but I, I did. Well, look, I've probably got <laughs> photos of me on the farm with a dog somewhere that I could hunt down. But the main thing is he lived majority off his own farm. Like yeah. they grew their own vegetables, yeah, yeah. fruits, and the dogs would share in those sometimes. So in the food bowl, all the clippings off, you know, like if they did the carrots and everything like that, it never went in the bin. It went in the dog's bowl. Yeah. Like they mixed it up with some – if he slaughtered a sheep or something like that, he would give it the – All the offcuts and All the, the offcuts, and- yeah, the organs, everything that he wasn't going to eat, the heart. He did eat some of the liver and, you know, we did lamb's fry and so forth. But most of that went in the dog's bowl. Like he cracked the head and give the dogs the brains to eat and all yeah. that. So all the rib cages for the dogs to chew on, anything that couldn't be tabled, he would give it to the dogs. And the dogs were thro- – they were muscular yeah. beasts of dogs and generally not purebred Kelpies. They were Kelpie cross something else. Like a lot of Belgian Shepherd owners in the old days, he didn't care what the dog looked like. He cared about the – work capability of the dog in fact his best dog he traded it for his best shotgun right you know like his brother had this dog and he wanted a shotgun and my uncle ray wanted his dog and he said All right, fair trade so let's trade the shotgun for the dog yeah right. so that that's how he got the, his best dog yeah right like you stipulated before the dog was a friendly enough type of dog where there wasn't a mean bone in its body towards people no. but it just didn't care about people yeah. so much it wanted to get off and go and do work because the alternative was being on the on the porch or being on a running wire with a rain barrel as its tank. It wasn't badly cared for. The dog lived to a ripe old age, probably about 18 years old. As I said, it was absolutely muscular bound. The dog could work all day, hardly saw a vet in its life, and it was in great working order. Mm. Those dogs, it's pretty interesting. Like it's hard to develop a relationship with those dogs. Now let me stipulate, like probably for people listening – they're not going to experience this because they're dog people. So they're doing the things that those dogs will enjoy and therefore they can develop a relationship through that. Yeah. So on the bike, running around on the paddock. If you're a dog person, you're going to do dog stuff with your dog. And so you've developed a, a relationship with the dog in one form or another, and then you can start to leverage that relationship to have the dog fit into the world. And when you're fulfilling the dog in many ways, and you're clearly a part of that dog's fulfillment, if at the minimum you're the driver of the Uber to get the dog to where it's going to do the things that it enjoys, then you have something you can leverage. And when the dog then, you know, in our Kelpie chasing the bike example, when the dog does want to do that, a decent form of punishment is you being pissed off and demonstrating that to the dog. And in some cases, then the dog will be like, oh, well, like me and you are a team. This fucks up our team and relationship. The environment changes. I don't want to do I don't want to do that. And that can make a dent sometimes. Mm. But if you're not, like if this is when we're talking about like when we get the call from a client who is a person, this was my bread and butter for years. This was so much of what I did because I live in the inner west of Sydney, which is at the time- and still is now, it's a yuppie area, but of kids who have moved to the city from other areas. So it's a lot of farm people or like rural people who are first generation city people. Yep. And dad's got a breeding of Kelpies, we'll go get one of them. And they bring it to the city and don't do any of the things that they remember. Yep. Like having 
you know, they remember the Kelpies that they grew up with as being like easy and they just, you know, they just find their own level. They do their own thing. they had jobs to do. Yeah. yeah they and now they're like, outputs. Yeah. yeah. So now, you know, the typical person that I would see with the Kelpie would be, I can think of dozens of people like this that usually it's the uh, a couple, young couple with kids. Yep. It's the husband, it's his dog. He has had it since he was an apprentice, right? It's yeah. like it was, you know, his late teens, early 20s yeah. dog that he's had. Mm. His partner, they had the dog together. They did things. They went places together. They've got a kid now. Now the dog doesn't do anything and the dog's a fucking disaster, yep. right? And so there is, the dog has like detached itself pretty well from the relationship that it had with the person because they're no longer doing the things that they used to do together. The dog's now like an afterthought to the the family. It's no longer the baby of the family. It's now an in- inhibitor to, to the baby. It actually gets in the way of us doing things with the real human baby that we've now brought into the house. And that's when the Kelpie starts chasing the bikes, going crazy, displaying all sorts of pain in the ass behaviors that when we get there, we're like, well... Like, and it came out of nowhere, you know? <laughs> well, the city community doesn't have the tolerance that the country community yeah. has for those breeds of dogs. But, but also there isn't access for the dog to do the things no. that the dog would normally need to do. So That's what I mean. The be, community doesn't support the needs of those dogs. Yeah, so it's not that the dog necessarily needs to be moving sheep around. It's that the dog needs to have a purpose. And yeah, it needs feel to be doing like some nose works something. or some Yeah, but it used to be that it, it went in the back of the ute and it went to the building site and yeah. it, it threatened to bite people that touched the back of the car and, you know, like <laughs> it just fucked around on the building site and, like, yep. it did all the things yep. that were, like, in reality were pain-in-the-ass behaviours, but your perception as what's a pain-in-the-ass behaviour as an 18, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old mm. single guy is a really different perception of what's a pain in the ass behavior as a 25 year old with a wife and an 18 month old baby. Yeah. Good point. Like, Mm. and so the dog really didn't change that much, Mm. but what did change was your lifestyle radically changed. We changed the dog's access to, you know, he still displays some of the same behaviors that you used to sort of think were charming and Mm. were cute. And you laughed when he threatened to bite you for like, cause I've seen this a bunch of times, like the dog gets territorial over the back of the ute and he threatens to, you know, you send the apprentice to go and get something from the back of the ute and he gets bitten by the kelpie right mm. and like i've seen that i've been the person that gets bitten right? yep. <laughs> like i've done that when i was an apprentice i've, yep. I've put a bit in this exact same situation i've seen that unfold many many times or you've put the suit on and tested the theory walk too close to the car and the dogs come out and tried to have a chomp at you totally yeah and that's funny when you're a when you're a 20 year old that's hilarious yeah that is super funny and because it's a kelpie it's not like it's going to be like a horrendous sustained bite you know it's going to tag them and let go and because it's your 18 year old apprentice that you're going to call it his fault and you're going to you yeah. know what i mean like <laughs> I that's happened to me when yeah. i got bit by that dog when i was an 18 year old apprentice it was just like well was he growling and barking at you i was like yeah but you told me to get the thing off the back of the truck. So I was getting the thing off the back of the truck. I ended up having to like divert the dog in one way and try and get the tools <laughs> in the other. And exact same thing. Everyone laughs like, ah, that's hilarious. And it is. It's funny until it's your kid. Or it bites and, the wrong person. Yeah. Or mm. until it's your kid that's trying yep. to get to its own toys and now the dog's not letting it near that, you know, yep. because the dog's taking possession over something. You're like mm. it's all these things that are cute, funny behaviors in one lifestyle when your lifestyle changes and, you know, those Kelpies, especially, yeah, you see those Kelpies live to be like 15, 16, yeah, up to 20. Yeah, they have great longevity because they've got such good hybrid vigor. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I was in the army with a guy who had a Kelpie in its 20s and yep. it, it looked like a six-year-old dog. Mm. There was no way you would ever believe that that dog was in its 20s. Yeah. There's another dog I got bitten by. 
it was lived in the back of his ute all the time. It was just always in there mm. all the time. And no leash. I don't think he even owned a leash for that dog, right? <laughs> like it was just in the car all the time. Speaking of, of being tradies and having those type of dogs, I used to turn up to this. <laughs> it still makes me laugh to think about it. <laughs> I used to turn up to this site and there were a couple of plumbers that worked there. And one of the guy, he was an older guy, like he probably would have been in his mid-40s at the time. And he had an apprentice. Me and the apprentice used to go down and get lunch together. When I first got to know him, I said, oh, you got a dog in the car? He goes, oh, yeah. And he goes, ask the dog what its name is. And I said, what's the dog's name? He goes, ask him what his name is. And I said, I'm asking you, how am I going to ask the dog? What's he going to say to me? He goes, just humor me, ask the dog. So I said, hey, mate, what's your name? The dog gets up, jumps out of the car, runs around and starts digging at my ass. And I go, what's he digging at my ass for? He goes, because his name's Arseholes. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Anytime you'd ask him, he'd start digging at your ass. When you ask him what his name was. Yep. You say, what's your name? And he'd start digging at your ass. So his name was Arseholes. So put your dog trainer hat on now. Yep. How did that get built? I would have said he would have done the behavior first and then he would name the dog afterwards. Yeah. So it would have been something that he saw the dog saying they, he would have laughed. Everyone so would have rewarded it. when you say digs it. at your ass, or you mean like he just drives his nose up your ass? No, no, no. Mean? He digs with his paws. Like he jumped up on you because he's a little dog <laughs> and he jumped up on you and started digging at your asshole. Yeah, so right. he called him assholes. But that wasn't his only skill. Like in tradie cars back in those days, there were always beer bottled caps on the floor. Yeah. So he'd pick them all up and he'd throw them into the garden and everything like that. That dog would retrieve every single one of them yeah, right. in his mouth all at one time. He would not come back until oh, he got pick them all up. every single one. So he'd count them in front of me and he'd go, oh, I've got 17 beer tops here. And he'd just go fling and he'd throw them into the garden of the site that we're working on. The dog picked up 17 beer tops, wow. came back with every single one. Yeah, right. Very impressive dog. Yeah. And like he was so well behaved, he could have the doors open, the windows open and put the dog in the car. The dog would stay there all day long without having to be told, without having to be scalded, anything. He'd just stay in the car. If he'd come out, he'd call the dog and say, assholes, or he'd get someone to ask what his name was, so he'd go and dig at their ass. <laughs> it still makes me laugh. <laughs> it's that's fucking years ago, but it was such a, a humorous thing to see and a very memorable thing. I, I actually love that dog. I look forward to working because, I mean, you know, being a trader, you'd pair up with certain people. We'd yeah. work with refrigeration mechanics and plumbers and brickies and all sorts of people. So we didn't always get to see this guy, but every time I'd see him, I was looking forward to seeing assholes. And then I would do the trick where I'd say to somebody, go and ask the dog what his name is and get him to dig their ass. <laughs> <laughs> there is a certain magic to having a dog on a work site. Yeah, there is. You know, I'd say that that's probably pretty rare these Especially days. Especially a dog like that yeah. where it's kind of like – and he, he allowed it for it too to be a community dog where yeah. all of the trade community, you know, while we're eating lunch, assholes would come and hang around. It made people smile. It made people interact more. It built on conversations. It created a sense of community. Whereas, you know, people without the dog there would be moaning about work and talking about how shit the weather was, finding something to grizzle about. Instead, when the dog was there, everyone was vying for attention of the dog, you know, like throwing the beer caps in the gardens or getting him to dig someone else's ass. <laughs> it was a fun environment to be in. And the fact that I can still laugh about it yeah. all these years, you know, like I was 17, mm. 17 when I first met that dog. That's quite some time ago. I'm talking 30-something years ago. Yeah. To remember that dog so succinctly because of how awesome he was. He yeah. was an awesome dog. I loved him. When I was an apprentice, you know, we're talking more than 20 years ago, that was when 
dogs were still allowed on building sites yeah. pretty regularly. Yep. But yep. it was sort of people were at that just point. Just about to phase it out. Yeah, people yep. were starting to get a bit funny about it at that point. Like yep. that was when, you know, workplace health and safety and all that sort of thing was really becoming much more of a thing. But there is a magic to that. And, and even when I was in the army, you'd get like certain bases and certain units and stuff would have what we call morale dogs. The best one was there's a firebase. I mean, it's long gone now, but it's called Firebase Tykes in Afghanistan. That It's a very small like patrol base, it kind of in a pretty bad area. So like it's a very dangerous base to be at. It's the kind of base that's nearly been overrun a couple of times. Right. But there's a dog there called Drogo. And the story with him was that, you know, so in Afghanistan, the average dog that you sort of see on the street are these enormous, they're mongrels. They're no one's chicken pedigrees. You know what I mean? But they're huge dogs. We're talking like 50, 60 kilo. And they look like Kangols. They're that sort of. Yeah. They probably are. Part that, you yep. know, like we used to just call them these big Afghan hounds, right? Yep. But like they're not a proper Afghan hound. They're just some kind of giant fucking dog that you yep. in Afghanistan. You know, Drogo is one of those. And what they tend to do in Afghanistan is they like, they dock their ears, but quite brutally young because the dogs fight a lot and that kind of shit. So they're better off without ears. Yep. And there was a guy, at an ODA guy, which is one of the American special forces. They were on a target and Drogo just had his ears cut off, I think. And so he just took him. <laughs> just like he put him in his pouch and was like, you're coming with me, little puppy and then he just was the morale dog on the base and so he would just wander around was this wonderful big social dog had no job other than just being a dog and he would just wander around do whatever he wanted engage with whoever he wanted he'd bark at random people he was yeah he was this great dog and you when you had to go to tykes even though it was like a fully dangerous base to be at you knew you like drogo. oh drogo will be there this yeah. will be wonderful and as you get there you go call him over and he'd ignore you <laughs> <laughs> like if you, he was one of those dogs if you showed him too much attention he was like ah fuck off i'm not interested right but like, i bet he didn't dig your asshole no he never did no he never <laughs> once dug my asshole but i the first time i ever Met that dog. He like got in my swag with me. I, the first time I ever went into that base, it was very late at night and I was the last in. I'd been out doing something. I was not part of the main convoy. I came in with a, the Afghan army guys and I didn't know he was there. And I just, I was exhausted. I basically just laid down next to my motorbike and fell asleep. And when I wake up in the morning, I've got this giant dog, like basically as a teddy bear. And I'm like, what the, where the fuck did this dog come from? What the <laughs> fuck is the story here? Why have I got lice? Yeah. And then one of the guys says, no, we'll get this the the dog handler on the base was like he was that he's Drogo's custodian. Okay. So certainly not his owner. Yep. Like absolutely. But he cared for Yeah. Him. He yeah. was like, you know, he makes sure that he's fed and healthy and is vaccinated and all that yeah, bullshit. Cool. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And they, I'm pretty sure they did rabies vax on him as well, just to make sure that like if he did bite someone, that's one of the biggest pains in the ass. I was talking about this the other day. Like, you know, um, back when I was in Afghanistan then, you get bitten by a local dog, you're a prior one casualty. It's it's the same as like a gunshot wound. You have to be medevaced out. immediately. Okay, wow. They have to call it like mm. – and, and even if it's a shitty little they nothing are rabies bite, yeah, that's the reason. Active. Yeah, okay. That's the reason okay. is that you got to right. start your rabies vaccines. Like I think it's within an hour you have to have the first shot or something like that. I can't remember all the details. And it's ongoing for ages. It's like it's – like, I can't remember if it's three or six weeks of shots every day. It's a it's a huge pain in the ass. That's why, unfortunately, so many people would shoot the dogs. If the dog showed any interest in trying to bite you, a lot of people would shoot them straight away because, like, the administrative fuck around if I get bitten by this dog, not to mention that you're bitten by the dog, like, even if the bite is not bad at all, a helicopter is getting called for you immediately. It's the end of the mission. You have to leave straight away because of the rabies risk, I suppose. Mm. <sighs> 
I do want to circle back to the book as a couple of things that I found intriguing in my very early venture into it. Mm. The example he used where he said, if somebody is going to do a job for you and you say to them, if you do that job, I'll give you a banana. He used that as an example of it's not really a reward because he said what would be better off is if they do the job and then you the next day you give them a banana. He said that's more of a reward to them. And I thought, well, that's great, but that doesn't work for dogs. Mm. How do you relate that across the dogs when there's such a long contingency of time between that? Well, you'll see later in the book it becomes pretty clear how not talking about dogs he is later in the book. Well, because he's, he, I know that the book isn't about being a dog trainer. Yeah. It, it's related to behaviorism in people. Yeah, because he even he makes comment later on. He talks about how like – it's something about a reading thing for kids, I think. And he says, like, you know, they aren't dogs. This works on dogs. Right? Yep. So he makes that sort of comparison of behaviorism being for dogs but not for people. Well, the other interesting point that he did make about behaviorism in the studies is he said most of the time all of the behaviorism was focused on lesser beings like animals that uh, have less cognition than humans or captives like people with severe mental illness and and criminals and so forth. He said a lot of the times the studies were done on these people and he said, so therefore it kind of disadvantages the study Mm. if memory serves correct and that was what I remember hearing today talking about it. But again, I'm so minimalistic into the book, it's hard to delineate where it's actually going. There were some good points, some things that I like. He used an example like talking about rewards where you say you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. And he Mm. said, but how rewarding is that for the fly? Mm. And I thought, oh, fuck, that's good. Mm. You know, I'm I'm definitely going to use that somewhere. Mm. The idea of coercion I think is pretty interesting. It is. And and there's a bigger conversation to be had there. The problem is like that idea of any form of positive reinforcement or, you know, behavioural manipulation of any kind being Mm. coercive and therefore, you know, unethical. I think that's an interesting conversation. The other point that he made with that, again, which I liked along the line of your thinking is he said that kind of thinking is the stick is contained within the carrot. Mm. I found that quite a succinct point as well. Like when he said that, I thought those sort of things align with what he was talking about because I thought that actually is constructed well, like Mm. the way he's placed that because that makes you think. He relates in those early first chapters about the whole stick and the carrot paradigm and then aligned with what you were talking about before, then when he started talking about coercion in, in reinforcement, he said therein lies the problem because the carrot is contained within the stick. And again, repeating on what I said before, I really found that quite profound. Mm. I still pay a lot of attention. There's a couple of force-free dog training groups that I'm in. Yep. They're quite fascinating. Everything is fascinating if you remove the offense from it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a balanced trainer. So the more I know about positive reinforcement techniques, the better, right? That's one of the beauties of being a balanced person and trainer is that you get to sort of just take it all in and use whatever works, right? So I'm happy to be in those groups. I see all the things. There's there's sometimes some really interesting information. A lot of the really cool tricks that I've learned how to do, Mm. I got from positive reinforcement only trainers because, you know, if you're going to go into a boxing match with one hand tied behind your back, you'd better be fucking good with that remaining one, right? Yep. But that idea of coercive control within any form of training comes up pretty regularly in a lot of those training groups. There was a a post the other day, they were talking about how if you use a clicker to train a horse to accept a bit, you've missed the point completely. And I was like, no, you've, you've got the point totally. But the idea of that coercive control via positive reinforcement is a heavy topic. And 
I think that when you, exactly as you say, when you completely remove the emotion, be like, well, how the fuck else am I meant to train this being to live safely in the world or perform the task, which it wants to do? Like, how do I fulfill it? But in a safe and ethical way, Mm. then, you know, that's where a form of coercion has to come in, right? In one way or another. But the ethics around that is an interesting conversation because rarely, I think, ever do two people fall in the exact same spot on that. Like we all have our own opinion on what is coercive and where you draw the line on, you know, ethically being coercive. Because I think we all are at one point or another coercive with anybody that we interact with Mm. and certainly any animal that we've trained to do anything that's exactly what we're doing. Well, his argument is that that's because we've created a culture or a subculture around that. Yeah. And he said that's the only way we know because that's the only method that we've accepted. Yeah. But again, I'm so minimalistic into the book, I'm only talking about chapters one to three. Yeah. Well, we should have this conversation again in a few weeks. We should, yeah. Interesting your example on the horse using the bit. If I was the horse, I probably really wouldn't want the bit in my mouth either. But how else are you going to effectively communicate with that horse? Yeah. And it's the same thing with the muzzle training that we do with dogs. I know Mando doesn't really want to wear the muzzle, but he understands that if I do this, then the great things that will come from it, it's to my benefit. It's the only way. It's the gate that I have to unlock to be able to get the reinforcer from the other side of it. And yes, I know that there's a form of coercion in that and I'm willing and completely happy to provide it because I know at the end of the day, he really does not want to wear that muzzle. He does not because I'm pursuant of a sport that requires it. He's going to have to do it, Mm. you know, and I'm going to teach him that his discomfort for it is going to be so minimalistic by the advantages of the techniques that I'm using in training from uh, that I've been learning. And I thought, What better way to do it? And as you stipulated before with the horse, you really got the point when you're reducing the discomfort of a learning paradigm where the animal actually gets to have a say in how it's done and how it feels rather than just whacking it on its head, doing up the strap and then just leaving it there to try and tear it off its head at a later date. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, the argument is that you shouldn't be doing it at all. I know that's the argument, but that doesn't wear for people when they need to take their their shitty-ass dog to the vet and the dog's trying to kill everyone, they say, I won't treat your dog without a muzzle. Yeah. And that's the first interaction that the dog has. And then the dog's got to be heavily sedated because it doesn't understand or have a relationship around the muzzle Mm. or understand the relief of pressure afterwards and say, I, as you've explained it so eloquently before, when this is removed, I know it's going to be so worth it for me, so I'm going to endure this. I don't really want to wear it, but I'm going to do it because the the payout afterwards is going to be magnificent. Mm. And if you're a good trainer, handler, owner of the dog, then you'll provide adequate compensation for the dog for wearing the muzzle for so long. Mm. And then the dog goes, well, it was worth it. It sucked. I didn't like it, but it was worth it. Mm. You know, the payout was magnificent towards the end. But the whole point that there's so many people out there whose first interaction to wearing a restraint is when the dog gets taken to grooming for the first time and it's never been given the opportunity to understand how that feels or put a muzzle on its face for the first time and never been given the opportunity to develop the relationship with that tool. I know we speak about this, how it is perturbing to our way of thinking, but it still creates fuckery in my head. Mm. I'm intrigued about it. I'm intrigued about how people can develop a counter-argument to that and still feel that their insights to it are valuable, but it's fascinating nonetheless. So a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, Mm. 
I was training Remy to do something that, uh, you know, it's, it's rare that I'm teaching him to do anything new these days, right? It's more just practicing skills. We make something a little bit more difficult, a little bit more complicated. We might add some more conflict to something, you know, some more draw away from the behavior that he wants to do, but it's rare that we're teaching anything new. But about a month ago, I was teaching something new, maybe a bit more than that. And it was just a stretch program that I'm doing for him just to try and keep his body in order, right? And so it was that I wanted him to keep his front feet on a two by four that he was standing on, yep. but then walk his back legs back without moving his front legs. Oh, is this the work that you're doing with Georgie? Like, yeah. So yeah. Yep. And yep. really I'm kind of just, it's good for him. It, it definitely is helping with yep. his shitty body. Yeah. It's definitely helping, but also it's just practice. It's just another skill to add to the thing. And I was trying to lure him. I was going to teach both my dogs the same thing. And Remy had been completely free shaped his whole life. And Val was lured. And even though she's done quite a lot of free shaping, but I decided to switch it up and free shape Val to do it and lure Remy to do it. So there was like a big learning phase of even convincing him to follow a lure, which he'll do sort of apprehensively now. And there's weirdness around that because I, you know, I booby trapped him with lures young or not young, but not too young, but early on in his career where I was like quickly showed him like, it's not the food, like detach yourself from that in order to find the other thing, which, you know, the way that I sort of raised him with all the shaping that I did, I've talked about many times, I won't do again with another dog. Like I very quickly learned, like I will, I'm never going to try and teach precise behaviors to a dog free shaping it. To, yep. to me, free shaping is... I wanted to do it as an experiment, you know, to to do a dog start to finish, and it happened to be the, a dog that I kept, right? So I won't do Free it again. Free too minimalistic anyway. I mean, it's such a fleeting process yeah. that it ultimately spans into shaping anyway. Yeah. Well, so I feel – I still feel really strongly about free shaping that it has a lot of pros. There's, there's heaps does. of goods that come of it. It does, but I think the argument that I've put forward, and I feel very confident in what I'm saying, is free shaping is only free shaping – like once you start establishing a system around it, it's no longer free shaping. Sure, sure. I mean, we're probably getting into the weeds on the definition of free shaping, but I mean, you know, like really helping the dog as minimally as possible and not including myself in the learning. Like having, I guess we're into capturing and molding and all that kind of stuff when you're it's then just, uh, framing and all of those sorts yeah, of things by it's, using it's minimalistic. Apparatus. It's just being minimal, as minimalistic yeah. as you possibly can. As you said, help the dog as much as you need to, but as little as possible. Yeah, which is the, my mantra now, but now mm. what I think about – when I t- think teaching precision behaviors, yep. I'm not going to just wait for a dog to figure out a precision behavior. I'm going to show him a precision behavior. Why not? I'm going to manipulate the way that he yeah, moves. Yeah, why, in a why not help behavior. us? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I so, agree. so anyway, I'm teaching Remy to put his front feet on a two by four and then walk his back legs back up a wall, essentially, right? So that he gets like a psoas stretch and we're strengthening his whole sort of core doing that. Yeah. And it was all kind of working, right? But we we're both pretty frustrated because he's sort of you know, he's figuring it out. You know, I know how to, I know how to mark and reinforce and promote behavior and through, you know, withholding reinforcement to prompt the next bit. And, you know, when I'm happy with that, you know, my continuation markers and payments in position, like I know how to do all this shit, right? I'm I'm fucking, I'm objectively good at doing it. I would agree. And you know, we're struggling our way through it and we're we're proceeding at a, a rate that I'm pretty happy with. And then I got one of those new prong collars. You know, the three mil, I think they're called. Oh, yeah, so they're, yeah, they're yeah. between the 2.2 and the 3.2 or whatever it is. Yep. Jason sent me one down. 2.25 or something, I think. They something. They're, something. So they're, they're this new prong, yep. which is new and exciting, right? Yep. So I get one, measure him up, and I put it on. And I got so sort of into what I was doing with the prong because I was like, oh, I want to test out this new prong. And what am I teaching? I'm teaching this thing. 
And I kind of forgot that I was, I had set myself a bit of a goal of teaching that in a particular way so that I was killing two birds with one stone, how my brain works, right? Rather than just teaching my dog something, if my dog needs to know it, because I'm a, a trainer of people, I want to experiment with as many modalities as possible. I regularly change modalities to understand the pros and cons of it. Yep. And totally forgot that like I have committed to teaching this behavior in a particular way and I'm just going to struggle through it, right? So I get this new prong call and I put it on. And in like 10 seconds, I've got this behavior that I was trying to get (laughs) (laughs) for multiple sessions. And what was interesting though, is the dog was visibly, I know the dog really well. And I know it could be difficult to, you know, I can't be sure of any of these things that I'm saying beyond how quickly he got the behavior that I can say for sure. Right. Well, they do say that actions speak louder than words. Yes. Mm. But what I feel like I can interpret is that, he was like, thank God, man. Like, why have I been missing this information? But don't all students, yeah. like, don't all students when a moment of clarity is presented to you? Yeah. Like so, if somebody can expediate something that you've been struggling through for a period of time and then somebody comes up and goes, oh, I can see what you're doing wrong. Why yeah. don't you do this, this, and this? And you go, mate, thanks. Yeah, You know, exactly. like I've been sitting on that for fucking weeks. I yeah. just, I wished you were here earlier. Yeah. And because the dog is so used to wearing a prong collar and he's been taught precision behaviors, you know, and I've fixed precision behaviors using the prong collar in the past, I've sharpened things up. I've held him accountable to things. I've used it for punishment. I've used it for negative reinforcement. He's very in tune with it. I've got a whole video on how I use a prong and how I make dogs intentionally quite sensitive to the prong. And by sensitive, I mean like in tune with it and understand that it is a pressure that they should pay attention to and it's guiding pressure for them. Of course it can be punishment. It can be that as well. But for the most part, I want my dog to be like, no, that's on for a reason and yep. I need to turn it off. And I don't even need to, because he's so in tune to that, very seldom do I need to get to anything that even approximates aversion. So you're focusing on the minimalism of it. Yeah. Mm. Is that your buzzword for the day? I feel yeah, like you've said I that a thousand is. times yeah. in this episode. Yeah. But so why not? Yeah, totally. Call mm. it that's the name of the episode. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the minimalistic but podcast. So with the prong, yep. I could just continue like a you have not got it yet signal. Yeah. And it were it's a tactile feedback. And what I'd been trying to do via spatial pressure and the way that I'm presenting the lure and moving my body and my like verbal sort of keep on going signal and all that it was all working and it would have worked i would have got there but just absentmindedly was like oh, i'm gonna try out this new prong and just completely undercut myself in the difficulty of teaching this because he got it like immediately yep and and it was clear to me the level of like he was thankful kind of looked at me like why were we not doing that yep right? like why were we dicking around clearly you were trying to teach me something i'm a super engaged learner why were you withholding that information from me about when I was wrong, when all I want to do is be right? And I was like, hey, man, sorry about that. I get it. We won't go down that path again. Yep. It's interesting, huh? Observations in certain things that you're doing with your own dog and developing good technique and strategy around it are exhilarating. I think it's one of the most exhilarating sensations that I feel these days, when you kind of feel that all of your pegs are falling into place. It was interesting the other day, was, we had Mando inside and he had a slight aversion to going under the table. Yeah. You know, we've got a table and chairs in there, just a normal dining table, six chair dining table, and he didn't like going underneath it. And I noticed that he was actively avoiding it. So at night, him and I love playing with his ball. And I, you know, we usually tell other people as handlers or owners of the dogs, don't engage your dogs inside, keep them calm, everything like that. I don't do that. I do the opposite of what I tell other people to do because I live with it. Narelle and I like it. 
Oh, I like it more than Narelle does, but we endure it, you yeah. know, like I'm happy to do it. I, I do what's called lounge room training with my dog. So I train my dogs inside because his quiet place, the place where I want him to be most quiet is outside in his pen. I don't mm. want him to be rambunctious out there. I want him to be chilled out there. So when I bring him in, I can do training with him or I can take him outside, do training out there with him, whatever. But for me, it doesn't matter. You're fully aware of the pros and cons that oh, come of Absolutely. That. Yes. You, That's you, why I say do as I say, don't do as I do. Yeah. What I'm prepared to live with would annoy somebody else. You know, like if I'm sitting in the chair and they're talking to Narelle, Mando's come out pushing for work. Yeah. And nobody who wants to relax wants their dog to do that. So it's counterintuitive of the standard dog at home. And I completely understand, you know, in your situation with Rip and Axel being little babies around the house, you don't want a dog shoving them and pushing them and driving balls into their face and everything, a ball into their face (laughs) while they're trying to relax or sit down and they're tiny little infants having a dog stomping all over them. That's where you have to draw lines with that sort of livability. So for me, it's not the same. Anyway, getting back onto what we were doing, I noticed that he had a slight aversion to going underneath the dining table. So I thought to myself, I'm not going to let this fly. I'm going to push it. I've got to address this. I've got to address it. So he needs to be habituated doing it. So I was deliberately rolling his ball under it, which was frustrating the shit out of Narelle. I didn't explain what I was doing to her. I was just going through the motions of what I was doing. But I was also at the same time working on my keep going signal with him as well. He went over there, he looked at me and he looked at Narelle and he kind of walked over to Narelle to dob on me and go, he's rolled my ball under there, can you do something about it? And Narelle went to get up and I said, don't, let this play out. It's got to be what it's got to be. So then he's walked over, he's barked, he dropped in front of the table and then he slightly nudged in and he did that and then the chair moved and he got a fright by it and then he moved back. He looked at me and then he went back and he went to go and do it again and then I gave the keep going signal. I said, good. From that, he developed a sense of bravery. He pushed into it more and I praised him more. Good. Like he kept pushing, pushing more. I reckon within an hour he completely got over his phobia that he would have sustained had we have done or sooked him or stopped the experiment or anything. But he completely got over it. He barraged through the chairs. He got his ball and he came over and we continued playing the game. Now, when I do it, it's of no contest to him whatsoever. I do it regularly and rapidly. We were doing some muzzle training work inside last night with him that I got Narelle to pair the muzzle with going under a chair and then slamming his face into a muzzle at the same time. So we chain that together. So we're putting two things that are a slight discomfort to him because I know, A, he doesn't like going under the chair and, B, he's not really excited about the muzzle he's enduring it because he knows what it offers at the end of it and i'm pre-macking it all with him anyway but now he's doing it readily and rapidly he's he's actually starting to seek it out because he sees like that saying what didn't kill me made me stronger like my perception of it is everything i believed about it the anxieties that i had around those behaviors none of it came true and therefore my strong leadership with him as well my perseverance and Narelle's because I educated her to what we were doing. I said, this is what I want to do with him. You know, we need to build him tougher. He needs to be stronger about these things. He can't just learn, you know, like as soon as I I feel uncomfortable, I'm just going to give up. And I said, it's not going to fly with the sport that I want to pursue with him. It was a very fascinating time and experimentation to do with him because I can see him becoming tougher for it. Mm. I can see him now pushing at things that he would normally try and avoid or go around. Now he's thinking, well, I did that. Maybe I can do this as well. Like I saw him doing it with other things that he would normally try and steer away from, but now he's found a resonation of power inside him that he's going, 
hmm, I've got a new ability. I want to try this out a little bit. That's one of the things that I think is difficult to explain to people who have never done anything super dangerous mm. is when you do something that has a, a level of perceived threat or danger. Now, even if whether it's real or perceived, doesn't really matter. Overcoming that, well, you know that like butterflies in your stomach. Oh, yeah. I don't want to do this. But you're like, fuck it, I'm doing it because the reinforcer on the other side is, or the draw, let's call it the draw, not the reinforcer, whatever it is on the other side is strong enough that you're like, fuck, I'm not quitting. I'm, this is taking me a while, but I'm getting through this. I'm going to the other side of it. The relief on the other side is often way better. It's narcotic. Yeah. It's a fucking narcotic. It, and I can tell you a recent one where I had it. Was it the one wheel? Yeah. You got me onto the one wheel, went to your yep. factory. The shop. The shop, the serious dog business place. When I first saw you post about it, I thought, oh, what a silly thing. Yeah, yeah. Just gimmicky. Yeah. I thought, I don't really have the right to think that because I've never played with it. So I'm going to reserve my right till I go and see it. And when I came to your studio and I played with yours, I thought this thing is so fucking cool. Yeah. I immediately became addicted to it. Yeah. But then when I was thinking about getting it, like I was telling a few people and they're going, oh, dude, that's crazy. Those things, you know, like so many people break their collarbones and- Yeah, without a doubt the most dangerous electric vehicle ever made. Yeah. Then I started to get doubts about it. But the more people would start telling me how dangerous it was, the more I desired it. Yeah. You know, and then I started to build an obsession around it where I couldn't stop thinking about it. Yeah. And then I spoke to you and you go, yeah, man, just fucking get one. Yeah. yeah. Crazy if you don't. Yeah. And I got one, but I had reservations about even getting on it and, you know, like being by myself out here in the backyard. Because I'd say to Narelle, you know, like I'm armoring up, but I'm going to take my phone with me. Um, or if you don't hear back from me in a certain time, come out and check, you know, because yep. I don't Keep your know. Apple watch on so yeah, it, exactly. it can automatically call you an ambulance <laughs> if you fucking dive in. I, I fall off on it. But, um, yeah, it's the exhilaration of going out there and, you know, like I fell off it, but I just dusted myself off and got back straight back on it. And I thought, holy shit, man, I've got such a rush of adrenaline coursing through me at the moment. I wanted to push it more. Mm. I wanted to do other things. Like at that stage I was just sort of like doing a carving technique, but then I wanted to roll it down a hill. Yeah. I thought, well, now I've rolled it down the hill. Now I want to go all the way up the back of the property and roll it around up the top there. And, I've, again, I fell off and I thought, okay, now I see the limitations in what I can and can't do in certain areas, but I'm going to push it to other areas because the 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 surge of adrenaline and dopamine that I was getting out of it was just – it was I could feel myself almost – giggling with insanity because I felt so alive because of it. Yeah. And and so what, like it's been my experience with dogs and I'm sure that you'd agree, you've probably seen the same is that when a dog has like a, a phobia of something like a fear, you know, like, and and it's unwarranted, like there's never had a bad experience. Mm. It just is there for whatever reason. The dog's perceived it as being a dangerous thing. When you push the dog through it, and I don't mean push as in compel them to do it, but sort of put them in a position where there's something on the other side that they want and yes. they, they make the choice themselves to yeah, go yeah. through it and they have to overcome that. They have to like, you know, internalize the struggle and go, fuck it. Like I'm making this decision. I'm going through it. In every instance, I have observed that the dog becomes like higher in arousal and drive for the behavior that happens on the other side, even really absent the pressure anymore. So here's a great example. Is, yeah, they can't not leave it. They, yeah, they love it. They become addicted to trying to unlock that puzzle yeah. and resolve their fear around it at the same that's, time. That's it. And this is the beauty of training, especially when you can you can turn 
you can sort of artificially create that if you can use a level of like negative reinforcement in that way where yep. the dog has a level of sort of like, oh, I don't know about this, but I'm going to do it. And then that's that intrinsic motivation of overcoming difficulty. Yep. And then there's the actual positive on the other side. That's why, you know, when people say like Nipopo is a lifestyle and all that kind of thing, that's what they're referring to. They're not talking about like fucking using negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement on every behavior all the time with everybody you encounter. It's that sort of overcoming difficulty so that there is the reinforcer that you were planning on getting. The positive yeah. reinforcement is going to be there, but there is that inherent just like mm. this creates a fucking like a, a power within it because I feel powerful having overcome something that I was worried That's about the in the past. That's the key word is the feeling powerful. Yeah. Like I said before, it is very narcotic in yeah. feeling. Even afterwards, like, I can only speak from my own experience, but even after I drove the one wheel, like I got adrenaline shakes getting mm. off it and it wasn't from fear. It was just like my, I had so much adrenaline going through yeah. me from the excitement of it. Like my fingers were shaking Yeah, and I thought, huh, would you look at that? Like I've actually got like an adrenaline tremor. The best example, most people can probably replicate this or have seen a dog similar is like dogs that are afraid of water. Usually when they overcome it, they become obsessed swimmers. Remy's actually a very good example of this. That whole litter that they had an issue with water very young that Sam identified very quickly yep. and took steps to sort of make them push through it. And he's in his highest state of arousal around bodies of water. Like it's actually, it's very difficult to control him. Like I to, you know, like if I take him to the beach or, you know, just anywhere where he can go swimming, anywhere near a pool or anything like that, he loads hard. Yep. And this is a dog that as a puppy would avoid puddle, puddles because he was forced to sort of push through it and it develops a level of like, oh, th that's mm. a feeling that I just am a, like, I, I need to get back into there. And they'll never probably get that ever again, right? Like yeah. they're, they're overcoming it. They're chasing that dragon forever, yeah. right? You're never going to – but you, you then get these dogs that appear somewhat artificially brave. Well, maybe that's true bravery. But, you know, I suppose that's an interesting conversation in of itself, the difference between – like bravery and not being afraid of something, they're sort of really different things. I used to talk about that with like parachuting, you know, like I had, you know, when I was in the army, I, I had a giant parachute malfunction in 2005, like nearly died, but I was never really afraid of parachuting. And it just was like, oh, this is part of it, right? You just fucking jump out of the thing and down you go and it's going to be what it's going to be. And so there's no element of bravery in that. It's just stupidity or lack of, you know. Lack of knowledge. Yeah, mm. or just dumb dumbiness. Yeah. But one of my closest friends was terrified of it. Like, and he did my para course with me and he fucking was shitting his pants the whole time. He had already had like an inherent sort of fear of heights. And the worst thing of army style parachuting is it's like a thousand feet, which is high enough to be still a height. You know what I mean? When you're at 10,000 feet, it doesn't even really seem like you're at a height, you yep. know, like your brain isn't really able to comprehend 10,000 feet. It looks like you're looking at a painting of the earth rather than like a paddock, you know, yep. but a thousand feet like is you can make out people's faces, you're only 300 meters in the air. So, yep. and you might survive if parachute doesn't open. <laughs> That's one of the, like at 10,000 feet, you're, 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 you're a, a puddle. You're, yeah, you're a mess, right? Yep. Like it's nothing, you know, but you might at a thousand. But so he would have to fucking really conjure it up, you know? So he was in that moment brave. And so I guess that's what bravery is, is yeah that i was overcoming. just going to ask you what your definition of bravery yeah. is so i think you need to be afraid before you can be brave yeah there has to be a there facing has to the be, fear and doing it anyway yeah there has mm. to be a certain like oh i know the odds yeah I'm, it terrifies me I, but i'm still going to rush i probably into it. shouldn't do this but yeah. i choose to anyway yeah and so i think that's what probably 
you know, it generalizes into dogs. And mm. so you get that like, fuck, I enjoyed that. And that's yep. what like when you have a dog that is kind of sketchy on something and you get them to overcome it, the dog is different on the other side. Yeah, it's, and, it's a level of maturity, right, to level up. Yeah, yep. it's a new thing. And yeah. then you get these dogs that are like, okay, well, fuck that. Let's see what else I can push, Yeah, right? Because I, they'll chase that feeling for a well, that's what Mando did. It was like, I need to experience that feeling again. At the time, it was pure terror for him. Mm. Like thinking of going under the table with all that calamity of all those chairs colliding together. Mm. But as you said, you know, like the pursuit of the ball was so alluring to him, like he just couldn't leave it alone. It wasn't something that he was prepared to turn away and walk away like the fox with the grapes and go, oh, yeah, yeah. they're sour anyway. Yeah. He looked at it and he goes, no, there is no way I am not, I'm leaving this situation without that ball. And I love the fact of sitting there on the edge of the couch just watching him puzzle it out. Mm. But I did the right thing like you were talking about, the use of working with Remy with your prong collar. Instead of waiting for him to take hours and hours and hours to do it, it was just that gentle coercion for me. Not going over and moving the chairs, not touching him or anything like that, but talking my way through it with him so he felt supported in his decisions. And then when he was doing them, I knew he was nervous and I thought, that's fine, that's fine, that's okay to be like that. But don't give up. Yeah. Face the fear and do it anyway. Feel the nerves, pursue the behavior. That's all I'm asking of you to do. And, mate, did we fucking celebrate when he got that ball out? Yeah. And you could see the look on his face. Like whatever I was doing was not anywhere near the exuberance that he felt by getting that ball all by himself, conquering a a fear, getting under the table and and taking it. Yeah. If a dog could smile – like just have this shit-eating grin on his face, he had it. Yeah. I was so proud of him. But, you know – it's a binary game though, because if he doesn't overcome it, you're fucked. Yeah. That, that's where people. It's, it's and that, a, yes, it's a roll of the dice. And you're that's exactly where, right. That's where I see if you're persistent enough, especially when you know if you can use the tools correctly. I actually just filmed this. I think it was yesterday. I filmed it, and it's going to be on my new online course. It was one of those things that, as it was unfolding, I was like, "Oh my god, I'm so happy that the camera is rolling." Like this is this is not only is the dog having the trouble that I didn't plan for but encountered. Yep. But it, I'm getting the footage to show how to fix. And it was an adult dog going into a crate, all right, that just in a new environment. So at his house he goes in the crates, no worries, but there's a different crate, different place at my shop, right? Mm. And so we're going towards it and he puts the brakes on and I then go like, okay, cool. Like I'm not going to force you in this crate, yep. but you're not backing up. Mm. And it was like a 20 minutes of us six inches from the edge of the crate of just like, hey, I'm not going to just cram you in there, but you're also not leaving. And like, I'm going to encourage you, but I'm not going to sort of ask you to do it because if I told the dog go in the crate, there's a good chance he might have, but there's also a good chance that he didn't. And then that's going to cause issues when I tell the dog to do something and I don't follow up because I wasn't prepared to just shove him in there. Right. Mm. So it's that like little bit, like, I just need you to take one step forward, but I'm not going to even, I'm not going to compel you to do that. I'm not just not going to let you go any further backwards and you're going to take that step and then we're going to have a break. And then, yeah, over 20 minutes we moved that last six inches and then the last, like he moves that six inch and then he dives in. Yep. And then I go, cool, man, leave him in there for 10 minutes, come back out, and now we're playing the game of in and out of the crate as fast as you can because the dog's like, he's going to have that forever now that like, "Mm, I got into the fucking crate. But I had the time. That's the thing, right? It's yeah. the time. Because you've got to be like You've got to be committed to it. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, commitment from the handler. Yeah. I mm. actually set up with that dog to film a different problem that didn't happen. So luckily I had the time. So I had allocated the time in the day to fix a bigger issue that the dog never presented. I have to add one thing. It's a linchpin to the whole problem solving that I was doing. 
if I didn't have, and I needed to know this myself, so I needed to be fully aware of what the surroundings are. And I played this through my head so many times before we actually went ahead and did it. So I went through the strategy of what could happen, you Mm -hmm. know, with the dice roll and everything like that. And I kind of thought, I know his drive level and his determination to get this ball, like it's going to play out for me. Mm. If I didn't believe that was going to be the case with the way it was set up, I would have separated the chairs to a point where it would have been far more comfortable with him. So I wouldn't have made it so invasive to begin with yeah. if I really believed that he wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Incrementally, I would have staged it back to a level where I knew he couldn't be defeated by it. But because I know him intimately and I have that intimate knowledge of his behavior and his mindset, I knew it would take time. Yeah, I knew it it would take time. I knew he'd be nervous. I knew he would check at a few different angles, which he did. He went one way. He tried to come up from a different angle. And I actually knew I could play it out of my head, the angle that he's going to go into it and select because I looked at it myself and I thought that's the only way that you could successfully doing it without having to crawl on your belly and go under chairs itself. Like he actually had to push chairs away to do it. Yeah. In my head, I created the pathway of success for him. Just knowing intimately the dog and sitting with him and using the time allotted to me, there was no way it was going to fail in my mind. Yeah. It could have, but I was so confident in it based on my experience and knowledge of the dog and the time that I've spent with dogs and behavior. I kind of thought this is going to play out beautifully. And it did. It played out almost textbook the way I did. Yeah. He went at it from four different attack angles and the exact way I knew that he was going to calculate the risk and go in after it, he played that almost to a T. I wish I filmed it. Mm. I wish I filmed him doing it. You know, like we filmed um, just as a, a story on Instagram last night, Narelle sitting on the chair and yeah, having him yeah. go under for the muzzle. Go back two weeks, there's no way he would have done that. Yeah. No fucking way. But so the risk, and this is what we see when people say that this type of training doesn't work, is when you don't let it play to completion or yeah. if you make the struggle outweigh the hope, right? Yes. So if yes. the dog then goes like, no, nah, I'm not doing it and doesn't do it, well, now it's a dog that didn't do it. Yep. And, and not only do it you- caves on others as well. It's, yeah. it's a house of cards. Yeah. Yep. In the same way that we said overcoming that struggle, that difficulty mm. empowers a dog and makes it know it can do that in the in the future, quitting makes a quitter. Yep. And it makes a dog that will quit quicker and earlier next time. This well, is winning to, is addictive and so is quitting. Yeah. Well, this is the, so like to my friend with the parachuting yep. thing, I think I might still have the video of my paracore so I could find it. So pretty often you get refusals in the plane and they throw you out because there's fucking no way, right? If you quit before you get on the plane for the first live jump, you do like three weeks of training before you do your first live jump, right? If you quit before you get into the plane, they know they can like, okay, work with you on this and help you. You can probably overcome that. But if you go up in the plane and then don't go out, you'll probably never will be able to ever again. Right. Because if they bring you back down, then you, you came back down. Right, like you found a way out of the pressure yep. that didn't involve overcoming the pressure. So, mate, they throw you out of the fucking. <laughs> and the way it's done is done in such a way like you're like lemmings going over a cliff. There's no time to stop, and you see people who are like, oh fuck, and they try and stop, and the person behind them just plows through them, or the jump master, mate. So there was a guy on my course who like did a full balk at the door and put both hands on the door, like try to stop. And they are so well drilled in that. They like chop you on the elbows and just kick you in the ass. Oh, so yeah, yeah. like you're straight out the door and everyone that happens to that happens to, they do this, you land on the ground, you pack a new shoot and fucking you go straight back up for your second jump. Yep. And they, you don't get that issue a second time around. 
because it's like, oh, I did it and I was fine. Yeah. Right? Like I, 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 I came out the other side. Yeah. But if you don't, if you go all the way up and then don't jump out, you'll probably never jump out. Or in order to do that, the amount of like therapy essentially that you're going to have to go through in order to be able to do it because you are a quitter mm. and you will, you identify as that. No, I'm the person that went up in the plane, didn't go out. Yep. Right. Whereas if you're the person, I went up in the plane, I was fucking terrified and then I ended up out of the plane and now I'm okay. Well then you, oh, the second time around, you just, you, you're into it. You're like, fuck yeah, I may as well enjoy this because it has an inevitable outcome. I'm definitely going out and I was fine the first time. I'll be fine this time. Mm. The last thing I'll say on that yep. is your final jump on the paracourse Mind you, this is, I think I did mine in 2003. So 20 years ago, I can, I'll never fucking forget this. Your final jump is CE night jump. So full combat equipment, you got your full pack, the whole lot doing it at night into darkness. You can't see the ground or anything. First guy, first pass has a massive female break, right? So he's on the drop zone screaming. (laughs) Oh God. As everybody else. So like I was like, you know, third pass. So like the plane goes around for a third time. So I'm under canopy and you can just hear this guy <laughs> screaming the whole time as I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like I can't even see the ground. I don't know when it's going to come. Yep. I just know that I'm going to fucking hit it at some point. Anyway. Damn. Yep. Have you ever done a nighttime dive? No. On the advanced open water, I think it's something that you can choose And it sounded fucking terrifying to me. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do it. And I really didn't want to do it. And even Narelle, we were in Fiji at the time, and Narelle said, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, no. And I said, but I don't want you to talk me out of it because I've gone through this struggle in my head where I've played this out and I've tried to talk myself out of it. And I said, but I've also committed to it as well. Like I've told the guy I'm coming, the boat's ready they're waiting for me. It's part of the course. I've ticked it as, you know, like yeah, the- I've put all the pressure on myself. I put all the pressure on myself. So I said, the linesman on the line, they're, they're, you know, like you're going to get piled into it. And we're boating out. And, mate, I was fucking shitting bricks, yeah, yeah. you know, because you're out in the Pacific Ocean. Like you jump in the water, you turn the torch on and you can see, but you can only see where that torch shines. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> we're in there. We're in the water and it wasn't too bad because we went down five metres to start with and then we were sitting on top of a reef and it was just, you know, that was down to five metres. But that's still five metres in pitch black in the yeah, middle of the yeah. Pacific Ocean. So we jumped in. I'm in there with the dive instructor. He's giving me the, the okay sign. I'm giving him the okay sign back. He's writing on his tablet. We'll stay here for a minute. We'll regulate and just make sure everything's going cool. Then we're going to go over over the edge of the reef wall and we're going to go down to 25 meters. Like I gave him the okay yeah. sign. As we're about to do this, this fucking shark comes and circles us. And it was a big silver tip reef shark and it was big. Yeah. And it had its pectoral fins like edged back and it was just going around and around and around and it kept coming closer and closer. And we just went back to back and we had our torches on it and we were just spinning around watching it. Now, at that stage, I wasn't scared because I thought, oh, he's cool with this, you know, like he's, he's having a good time with this. And um, we're just spinning around watching the shark and eventually the shark just disappeared into the into the blackness. And we kind of waited for a minute. Like my heart was beating. I didn't realize my heart was beating so much. But I, th- I kind of thought, oh, that was cool. You know, like I'm a bit, bit nervous about it now that I'm thinking about it, but my dive instructor is cool. So he's just written to me, okay, we're going down over the reef wall. I went down over the reef wall. We had a great time. We turned the flashlights off. We were splashing in the water and making the plankton in the water, they're photoelectric, so they glow. It's like watching stars. When you rush your hand through the water, they all light up because of the agitation. We're watching all the marine animals. We spent about 45 minutes down there. We came up. We did a safety stop. We got back on the boat. 
we're going back in the shore and he puts his hand on my shoulder. He goes, mate, I don't know about you, but I was shooting bricks when that shark came. <laughs> Had I have not done that, I would never have done it again. But we went to the Maldives just before COVID and there was a night dive being offered over there and I jumped at it. I yeah. said, yeah, I want to go and do this. I got a real rush out of it before. And a great time. Loved it. You know, like I went round. I was – we went down to about 30 metres. I was having a good time. We were swimming around, you know, like there were little caves and nooks and crannies around this island. But it was, it didn't shock me or fright me anywhere near as what it did the first time. But I believe that you're right. Had I have talked my way out of it, I would not have done it. There's no way I would have gone into that night dive. That's one of the things on the barrier test before you can go to Special Forces is a, they call it a blackwater swim. It's yeah. 400 metre swim over the horizon in the ocean at, during like no moon illumination. So they don't, you have to go below water. You've got to swim 400 metres from one boat to another yep. in total darkness. Do you have flotation device on? Or? Yeah, yeah. So it's not like a swimming test. It's a bravery test. Like oh, it's yeah. like you got to get in the water and swim to there. Like okay. it's not a hard physical thing. It's just you got to do it. And there's almost always someone that's like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. It's crazy dangerous because one time I was the like in the safety boat. There's safety boats that are just idling. They don't know they're there, right? So if anything goes wrong, they can be rescued and whatever. They don't know they're there. So you're sitting there with night vision goggles on so you can see everything they're doing. Yep. And the guy I was in the boat with, Leroy, he goes to me one day, he goes, hey, Pat. So they're wearing dry suits and got like a silum stick on their back. Yep. And they're wearing like an inflatable vest thing that's not inflated, but like a dry suit has heaps of buoyancy. Like yeah, it, yeah. it's not a physically yeah. difficult thing. Leroy goes to me, he goes, mate, you ever been um, deep sea shark fishing? I was like, nah, never. And he goes, yeah, I do all the time. Use these little black rubber lures with this little green thing on it. It looks exactly like that. <laughs> I was like, oh. like, okay. Yep. All right, that's it for the deep sea fishing podcast. Just we bounced around. We did. Oh, well, we'll get the feedback on that. Yeah. Just before we kick off, I do want to say a very big thank you to Antonol Australia. Oh, yeah. Who have been very kind and been offering a lot of sponsorship for us. Anytime I ask them to help us out, if we've got a seminar or an event on, Antonol are first on the line. Mm -hmm. They jump into it straight away. They're big fans of the show. It's an amazing product. Remy's on it. Amazing product. Narelle has said to me multiple times, and this is no shit, this is not a pissing in pockets conversation. Narelle has said to me many times, if your dog isn't on Antonel, you've got to question why. Yeah. And she said it's really a cradle to the grave sort of thing. I think it was Carnelian talking to me the other day about her puppy and talking about supplements and products. And I said, talk to Narelle. And she said, yep, I will. Can you ask her if there's anything that she would recommend putting my puppy on immediately? And I I did. I said, Carnelian's getting a puppy. She would like to know if there's anything that she should be putting her dog on straight away, like any of the canineceuticals gear. And she said, well, the first thing I would do before any of that is Antonol. Mm. She said, all our dogs are on it. We've got Mando and all the Frenchies on it. Randy's on it. Randy's on it for the rest of his life. Yeah. Bang um, for your buck, I think I don't get any money from Antonol and they pay full price for the product. Well, from Norell, But bang for your buck, I think it's probably the best supplement. Like it's quite noticeable yep. when my dogs aren't on it. Like I do see a change. That's mate, enough for me. Mate, it's an amazing product. I've met the CEO and owner of Antonol, one of the – the directors of Antonol had a good chat with him at the dog lover show and just the extraction process that they do with New Zealand green lip mussels to get their amigas from it. Mm. It's a real Can process. Take it? Can I take it? Would it help me? I, I, <laughs> I, I believe it, it's a human grade, Okay, but any of those things that's actually listed for dogs, yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. the same with Norelle's. Norelle's all human grade products, yeah, yeah. but because on her labels it's listed for dogs, she can't give can't it to- Can't say it. Yeah. She can't legally give it to people. I've taken canines. <laughs> well, that's up to you. We, it's, <laughs> we haven't told you to. <laughs> no, no one told me to, but I- But it's I human grade. It. Yeah. yeah. I, 
I wanted the benefits of the the pee, and I yep. didn't have any human pee, but I had dog pee, and I was like, you know what? It's got to be the same. Yeah, it's PA, not P. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Antonol. I really appreciate you, and thank you for being so supportive of our seminars and our podcast yep. and the dog training community in general. If, Like I said before, if you haven't got your dogs on Antonol, you have to ask yourself why. Is it available worldwide or is it just a Yeah, it is. It it's, is it's, yeah. Antonol is a worldwide product, but registered here, it's called Antonol Australia. Right, okay. Look them up, fantastic product. You can get it from Narelle. Narelle sells it on her yep. CanineCeuticals website. Because it's something that Narelle has fundamentally researched, she looked into it. I think she got it, some information originally from Sasha Parker. Narelle looked into it and thought, yeah, this is the goods. This right. is something that I'm happy to put my name behind. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you. All right, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe. Do all that through the whatever subscription service you download us from. Then go to another one. And then get on the mailing list. Yeah, need jump on, on that mailing, mailing list. list. We yep. need you on there. We're yep. paying for it. Yes. We haven't sent out a single email to anyone yet, <laughs> but we're paying to have a mailing list yep. just in case Facebook implodes, which they're fucking maybe going to since the stupid Quest headset just got blown out of the water by uh, Apple Vision. Apple Vision. Mm. Yeah. Well, we don't know yet because it hasn't. the Quest 2 hasn't hit the market. Yeah, but I mean, come on. It's a fraction of the price. Come on. You wants to be in the metaverse. No one, <laughs> no one wants to go to the metaverse. Zuckerberg's kidding himself. He's yeah. lost his mind. He's yeah. driving that ship into the ground. It's it, it's you it's, so reminded me of the skit with Auntie Donna when they're doing the Christmas pudding. He goes, Come on, mate, you want another <laughs> bit of Christmas pudding? <laughs> what are you gonna do? Pretend that we live in the metaverse and be little avatars walking around talking to each other. Do you see Kyle Dunnigan taking off when he yeah. does Joe Biden and then he has I love Ma- him. Mark's Zuckerberg walk in and going, oh, would you like to join me in the metaverse? <laughs> no one wants to join you in the metaverse, Zuck. You're going to be in there by yourself in your own billion-dollar fucking metaverse. Yep. Anyway, so get on our mailing list in case Zuck shits fuck, uh, <laughs> shit fucks, in case he destroys Facebook. We might just log in one day and we'll be like, none of you bought enough of the Quest headset and now the whole thing's crashed. Yep. And Instagram keeps changing its fucking layout and algorithm and everything every five seconds. They're just flailing around. He'll probably have the do. biggest sook and he'll go, oh, for not joining the metaverse, you I'm going to show everybody your private messages. You don't know how to use internet. I am internet. <laughs> anyway, get on mailing list so yep. you can stay in touch. Mm. If you want to support the show, jump into Patreon. Yeah. Cool stuff going in there. Great stuff. Um, Especially your lives. I see all the messages like blasting yeah, on my... Come in. It's yeah. a pretty good deal, if I'm honest. It's, it's, a it's in that $10 deal. tier. I spend two hours... Yeah, it's like a questions. private lesson where yeah, people basically. get to actually come in and yeah. get, get a one-on-one. Yeah, and it's the same people ask questions all the time. It's great. I love doing it because yeah. there's been numerous people who like over each month ask questions and then it's like, okay, what's the next step? Because they've It's chapters in a story, yeah, right? Totally. Mm. I'm enjoying it. Yep. Anyway, more content coming in there soon. If you want to buy a t-shirt, that'd be a good idea too. Yeah. Why not? Yep. No water bottles or underwear. No. But you can buy that. a towel. The towels yeah, are great. That, oh. Come on, come on. <laughs> They're towels. Be a team player. <laughs> <laughs> they are a towel, technically. You can uh, get a, what do we call it? The, the tapestry. Uh, get a tapestry, for God's sake. Actually, a, yeah, I need to get a tapestry. You now do that need I've to get a, a tapestry to now that you've got yeah. serious dog business. Yeah, I need to put up a tapestry. Yeah. Do you want to get in contact with us? You can join the Facebook discussion group. Yep. That's the place to do it, so long as it exists. Maybe we could get into the metaverse together. Maybe we could have some kind of interaction <laughs> Or if we in get enough Patreon money, we can get some Apple Vision goggles mm. and maybe they've got like a Apple-verse. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I, I'm, I'm in the Apple-verse, let me yeah. tell you. I'm yeah. in. 
I'm in. I'm 100%. I am intrigued. I think that, like we said in last week's episode, getting to do this editing on a screen that you can walk around anywhere and take it to any place yeah. and literally just hook it up and be able to do that, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Great idea. Yeah. you got to do that when mm. they come out. If you want to shoot us an email, we are info at the canonparadigm.com. Goodbye. <laughs>